So yeah, 1 Samuel 17, verses 12 through 30. This is the word of God. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah, named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. And the names of his three sons who went to battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and the next to him was Abinadab, and the third was Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For forty days the Philistine, Goliath, came forward and took his stand morning and evening. And Jesse said to David his son, Take your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves, and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well, and bring some token from them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah, fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions, and he went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All of the men of Israel, when they saw, that, saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who comes up, who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the, man, to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, So shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why have you come down, and with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way, and the people answered him again as before. This is the word of the Lord. May the Lord bless the reading and hearing of his word. Let us pray. Dear Holy Father, as we get into this time together today, Lord, um, we, we just ask you, we beg you, Lord, to help us see you more clearly through this text. Uh, I am but a willing servant, uh, incapable of properly handling your word, but you saw fit uh, to use me in this time uh, to prepare me through this week, and I thank you for that. Uh, it, is, it is a beautiful and wonderful mercy um, to, to be um, able to present your truths in this way, and so I just ask, Lord, that I'm able to get out of the way, allow your word to speak to your people so that when it goes forth, it will not return to you void, but will accomplish all that you have set it out to do. This is our prayer. And we ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So when I read through this passage and kind of read through the chapter and was thinking about what direction to take, because there's so much going on here. It's, it's, a, it's a long narrative account that's given of this event. Um, the kind of thing that kept coming to mind uh, is the, the title, of our, yeah, title of our sermon, Who's the Man? That, that's the thought that kept coming to mind. Who will be the one 
to step up. Uh, if we were to go back a couple of verses in verse 8, Goliath says this, where as he's blaspheming or defying the God of Israel, he says, choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. But then we get to verse, or and we get to verse 10, and he doubles down saying, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man. Right? He's looking for someone to contend, to battle with, to fight to the death in order to conquer them. He's open, openly mocking and blaspheming God and his people in the process. Right? He's provoking them to, to anger in order to allow someone to come forth. Now, as Pastor mentioned last week, this was this, um, this style of battle that was done. It was kind of a, a, a quick style where it was just champion versus champion. Everybody had their gods that they believed in, and their, their understanding was, well, if our God is with us, right, when we go to battle, it doesn't matter if it's all of our men or just a single man, our God is going to cause us to prevail over this other, uh, this other army. And so that's kind of the, the general consensus of that day. Uh, but when we see the, the people of God, they're, they're kind of questioning uh, what they should do. So then we ask that question, well, who is the man, right? Because this has been going on for 40 days now, right? He comes out, he mocks him, he blasphemes God's name, and then he goes back. He does this day and night, right, is what it's saying. So this is happening over and over again, uh, and, and the people refuse to step up. No one wants to step up. No one wants to represent the most high God that they know who saved them out of Israel, who parted, or Egypt, that parted the Red Sea uh, and, and has given them this promised land. No one wants to do that. If we look at verse 11, we see Saul's response. This is what he said, or this is what happened with Saul. It says this, when Saul and all of Israel heard these words of the Philistines, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Right, so all this is going on. They've got this king that they chose, and even him is, even he is shaking in his boots at this point. Now, when I looked up those words, dismayed and, and greatly afraid, what it kind of made, what came to mind when I thought about how these words could be better described today, because I don't, I don't know about you, but I don't use the word dismay. I never think of myself as being dismayed or people that I know. Um, it's, it's kind of like an extreme panic attack, right, is what they were going through. There is this, like, cloudiness. They can't see clearly. It's, it's this super stressful time. Uh, it, it's that type of scene, if you will, that, that they are going through. Everything seems hopeless, right? They don't have hope in the God that they serve. They're like, man, this is a huge task ahead of us. What are we going to do? Right? Who's the man that will step up and deliver the people of God? Now, as we read our passage, there's three men that are mentioned in particular. kind of already mentioned one of them, so there's a little spoiler alert there. But uh, David, Saul, and Eliab. These are three, three men that are mentioned here that are prime candidates for who, who is going to step up. Right? And for the sake of, for the, sake of um, the sermon, we're going to take those three and we're going to kind of reverse them. I want to talk first about Eliab and then Saul, and then David. And, and you'll see why they're worded that, or they're let, uh, set up that way when we get into it. So that's, that's going to be the way we kind of walk through this passage and that big idea, who is the man? Who's the man that will deliver the people of God? So who is Eliab, right? He's the first one mentioned here. He's the, son of, he's the oldest son of Jesse. He's an Ephrathite from the tribe of Judah. Uh, he and his two old, younger brothers were chosen for battle, right? They followed Saul into battle. And I was kind of thinking about Eliab as an older brother. Now, I'm an older brother, but then I'm also a younger brother because I have two older brothers. But within our household, I was raised with my younger brother. So I can kind of relate to the, uh, the older brother complex, right? You're, you're always right. Uh, you're always assuming the worst motives in people. Uh, you know, you're a little judgy and things like that. You think you know better, right? That's kind of the things that go through uh, our heads. But 
outside of that, right, he's the firstborn. He's the one that will carry on the family name. Uh, he's the one that the most eyes more than likely are on since he's going to be the one that's going to carry on the name of Jesse. Now, if we were to picture who he is, if we go back to chapter 16, his appearance was, was good. Uh, in chapter 16, in the first part of the verse or first part of the chapter, this is when Samuel is going to Jesse's household to see who would be the next anointed king. Well, he sees uh, Eliab first. This is the first one he sees. And in his mind, he thinks, yeah, this is, this is the guy, right? If, if, king, if Saul is our king now, th this guy fits that same mold, right? He, he must have had a similar appearance and um, he must have looked similar to him. And it says, it says it this way in verse 6, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. This is uh, Samuel's thoughts concerning Eliab, right? He must have had the physical appearance of, of kingship. Um, but yeah, but as quick as he thought of that and was thinking this in his head, God quickly reminded him of why he was there and who God's uh, chosen anointed one would be. He says this in verse 7, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I've rejected him, right? He's not the chosen one. Uh, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So if we take that into account, what was said here, what was said in chapter 16, it's easy to tell that although Eliab could have potentially carried great qualities, right? Um, more, with all that thought of and all that stuff, he's not the man, right? He's not the man that God would use to deliver his people, now, Saul is the next guy that I want to mention. <clears throat> so who is Saul, right? What, what is he? Is he the man that is going to deliver the people of God? Well, Saul was a Benjaminite. And according to chapter 9, this, this is some stuff we've talked about before, he was the best-looking man in Israel, right? That's, that's the way he's described. There was no one handsomer, if that's a word, or more handsome than he, right? That, that's who he was. And I, as I was trying to, because I think it's important as we're talking through this, to we kind of picture people to kind of help us relate? At least that's, that's the way my mind works. Uh, I've never watched the show, but there's this show called Yellowstone. Has anybody watched that? Okay, so I'm not going to try to cause anybody to stumble, but there's a character named Rip, Rip Wheeler that apparently everybody goes gaga over, right? So that's, that's what I picture. No? Okay, some people don't feel that way. But I, I picture this kind of guy, right? This rugged, uh, just man's man, right? That's, that's what Saul is, right? When, when people saw Saul, they were like, that needs to be our king. He is the epitome of man, manhood, right? If, if, if anybody was to be king of us and represent us to these other nations, this is the guy that we want, right? And so if, if, if it's not Rip, then put somebody else in their place, and, and you can kind of go from there. But that's kind of where my mind went, right? He's this really attractive guy. And not only that, he stood head and shoulders physically over everyone else. And so if you kind of, you know, being realistic, right, he wasn't a giant like Goliath, uh, but standing head and shoulders over everyone else, more than likely there was about a foot, you know, 12, 10 to 12 inch difference between him and the average man of that day. Well, the average man of that day stood about 5'5", five, five, right? 5'3 five, to 5'8 was kind of like their range for, for men during that time. Uh, so imagine someone six and a half feet tall, right? 6'5", six, 6'6", six, six, something like that. This is around the height that it's believed that, that Saul would have been. He would have been one of these guys, right? If they were to walk in the church, they kind of duck as they walk through the, the, head, the doorway, right? Extremely good looking, tall, all this, right? He's got all, the, all of that going for him. Must have come from a good family. Uh, he was a, a man of war, right? At, and once he was uh, anointed king, he took his people to battle. Uh, though he had some, some shortcomings, you know, he, he was a man of war. He died 
uh, pretty much in battle, right? He, was, he, he fought to the day that he died. <clears throat> um, and he loved his people, right? He, he loved his people to a fault. Uh, although he waged all these wars and died in battle, ultimately, he was also a coward. And that's what we see in our passage today. Verse 11, once again, if, let me read that just for our context. When Saul and all of Israel heard these words of the Philistine, right, this guy blaspheming the name of God day and night, right, just continuing to defy the, the God of Israel, they were dismayed and greatly afraid, right? This is, this is how Saul felt, and, and that resonated with all the people. So you could say that Saul and his people were shook, right? They were shook to the core. They were paralyzed with fear, and they didn't know what to do, right? They, they, they were, all hope seemed to be gone, right? This has been going on for 40 days. I can't imagine doing anything for 40 days consistently where someone's just constantly mocking me, right? I, that, I can't imagine how that would go. Um, but that's how long this has been going on. And now when I thought about that, right, I thought about Saul's leadership and how he was the man chosen by the people, and I think about my leadership within my home, right? If I'm going to point the finger at Saul and then turn it back on me, it, it, it causes me to question and, and examine myself uh, because if this happened with Saul and his people, where are these type of things happening with me and, and my people, right, the people in my family? And so where am I failing to lead them? Because if I'm failing to lead, I'm leading in failure, right? That, that's what we're doing. Where am I neglecting them and their needs? Where has my leadership brought them to a place of fear, dismay, and, um, and, and great fear, right? Where, have, where has that brought about some confusion or even a distrust in my leadership, right? Where, where, where in my life have I done those things in order to, to bring about doubt in the way that I'm heading my family, and so as I thought about those things, thinking about Saul, thinking about myself, I found this quote that I can't find anything else by this guy, but I thought this quote was really helpful to kind of paint that picture for us when we think about, as men, how we lead our families. Uh, it's, it's this. this. The guy's name is Arthur W. Newcomb. I've, I've never heard of him before uh, the other day, but uh, apparently he's an author. So, you know, yeah, I don't know if you want to go looking up his stuff because I, I couldn't find anything. But this is the quote. I, I, I thought this was very convicting and very true. It says this, show me the leader and I will know his men. Show me the men and I will know their leader. Right. As I as you see the way people are being led, they're going to respond a certain way. Right. As as people are being are, are following their leader, they're going to respond a certain way. Right. That's that's the way things work. They, they operate uh, in light of each other. And so. It could be said if Saul was taking care of business like he was supposed to, leading them as God's people, reminding them that of the God that they serve, that they can take courage in the fact that God's promises never fail and that his faithfulness endures forever, their response could have been way different than what, what it was. Right? This wasn't the first battle they had with the Philistines, and this wouldn't be the last. So I, I take that question and, or that that statement and turn it towards Saul, but then I want to turn that to you guys as well, right? The men of their homes. If we are handling business the way we should in our homes, the way we've been commanded to by God, maybe our families wouldn't find themselves in the struggles and the shortcomings and the issues that we find ourselves in today as well. Amen? Right? As Vody says, if you can't say Amen, say ouch, I'm saying that backwards probably, but if, say ouch if you can't say amen, right? That, that's, that's what it is. Our, our families are, 
a reflection of our leadership in a sense, right? Now, what I'm not saying is that everything that you've ever done uh, is, is wrong and, and that you're, it's 100% your fault. But what I am saying is I think we should ask ourselves this question, who runs our home? Right, who, who's running your home right now? If someone was to look at it, who is running your home? Is it you? Is it your wife? Is it your kids? Or is it God? Amen? Right? Who, who's running your home? It's going to be evident to anybody who looks in from the outside. It's going to be evident to your spouse. It's going to be evident to your kids. It, that's the, the cold, hard truth. So if, if you're kind of wrestling with that, where you're like, ah, no, we're good, and, you know, God's running our home, and, and that's, the, that's the, the idea that you go. At, at our uh, community group on Wednesday, I kind of mentioned this question in a sense, and so I'm going to reword it for us, for all the men here to kind of keep this in mind, and for the, for the wives uh, to be praying about this same type of thing for their husbands. But this is the question that I want us to ask ourselves. This is a quick test to figure out uh, who's running your home, Right. How often do you get upset when God's laws are broken in your home? Now, how often are you upset when your laws are broken in your home? Out, right? Yeah, right. Whose law am I concerned with more, right? Who's running things in my home? I think we could all do better about that, right? God's law is supreme. My law, let, let man be a liar. And God, God be true and every man a liar, right? My rules don't mean anything if they don't align with God's law. Saul, and think of it this way. Saul was a man of the people and it destroyed him. He was a man of his people and it destroyed him. He did what was right in their eyes. He let the fear of man ruin him and let his personal desires ruin him. So I ask the question again, is this what you want for your home? Is this what you want for your spouse? Is this what you want for your kids? And ultimately, is this what you want for your God? So going back to Saul, is Saul the man? I think we all know the answer to that, right? So who does that leave? That leaves one guy. It leaves David. So is David the man? Is he the man? Right. Well, let's look at our passage and see what it says about him. In verses 12 to 15, we're reintroduced to David. Right. He's mentioned in chapter 16, uh, but we're reintroduced to him. We're told once again, like Eliab, he's the son of Jesse. He's the youngest of eight boys. Um, he's an Ephrathite from Bethlehem of the tribe of Judah. Right. We also hear later on in this passage, as well as the previous passage, that he's a shepherd boy. Um, who has experience fending off wild animals, bears, lions, um, all, all kind of animals, wolves, that kind of thing. He, as he tends his flock, he is used to this, uh, these, these predators seeking out to eat the sheep. Now, him and his four older brothers were not sent to battle, right? So <clears throat> Jesse's the one that's sending him back and forth to get reports and, and do that type of thing, right? He's just the youngest, and he's the errand boy, right? He's the, the gopher, right? Go for this, go for that. But considering the lineage, I could have mentioned this with Eliab, but I'm going to mention it now for the sake of the sermon, right? I mentioned from the, them being from the tribe of Judah, right? Uh, Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, Eliab and David are from the tribe of Judah. Why is that important? Well, 
if we go back to Genesis, right, if we go back to the first book of the Bible in chapter 49, uh, that chapter is when Jacob, uh, son of, of um, Isaac and Abraham, he's giving his blessings to his children, right? He's prophesying to them. And in verse 10, this is what he says concerning Judah, the line that David and Eliab find themselves in. He says this, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of all the peoples. So when Saul was chosen, if the people were a people of the book, right, had they been reading God's word, living by it, doing that type of thing, Saul wouldn't have even been in, in, converse, in, in the conversation for the king of, of Israel, right? But as we know, they did what was right in their own eyes. They, they found what they saw, and that, that's what they wanted, in spite of what God had already spoken. Now, if we look at David, so far, he's checking off all these boxes, right? He, he's, he's of the tribe of Judah. He's, he's a shepherd. Uh, he, he fits a lot of the qualifications. In chapter 16, he was anointed the future king, right? Another box that was checked. Uh, and then... Spoiler alert, right? He goes on to kill Goliath, right? He ends up doing it, right? He ends up killing him, right? Exactly. It's crazy. I'm sorry. I'm sorry I ruined it for you. But he, he kills him, right? He takes these smooth stones, throws the stone, knocks him out, takes his own sword and kills him. And then he goes on to be praised by the people, right? Saul kills thousands. Uh, David kills tens of thousands. Um, now, throughout his life, he continues to be a man of war. He's constantly in battle throughout his life. Uh, over the course of his life, he writes at least 73 of the 150 Psalms. Um, and <clears throat> for the most part, if anybody knows anything about the Bible, they know the story of David and Goliath, right, to some extent, right? You can ask that. I mean, that's in, in the sports world, right? The underdog is, the, is David and the, the um, well, the underdog, underdog is David and the favorite to win is Goliath, right? That's the kind of thing that we, that we go off of. Now, I'm saying all this stuff to kind of, get us to where we're going, right? It, it is a spoiler, but not really. Um, I kind of wanted to, to take another little, I like rabbit holes, right? You got to forgive me, but I think this is what's going to help us get to where we're going. Um, there's something that I need to share with y'all that y'all probably didn't know about me, right? And, and I'm thinking of how I relate to David, but um, I've never slain a giant, right? Confession time, I've never slain a giant. That's, I've never been confronted with one, uh, and if I was, I don't know if that would be what I would do, but I've never, I've never done that, okay? It's out there, okay? I, I, that's a heavy weight lifted off my shoulders. But what I have experienced, similar to David, is that, that joy unspeakable, right? That, that confidence that, that seems or that is supernatural, right? The, the, the conviction to do what God has said in light of the circumstances around you. And, and all of us can relate to that. If the Spirit of God dwells within you, you've experienced that as well. The same power that empowered David and empowers you today empowered Christ in, in his resurrection. It's the same power that's being expressed by the Holy Spirit with us or through us. And this is done to the glory of God, right? We all have that. So it's David wasn't given some special uh, power, right? It's, it's the, the power of God that's working through him. But but what I'm, the whole point I'm trying to get across is the fact that we all come across potentially insurmountable things, things, circumstances that seem on the surface to be difficult to deal with, right? These giants that you hear in these different um, churches, right? Oh, you're facing your giants, these, these difficult tasks or whatever. We all go through those things, but God is the one who is leading us through them. So 
I don't want this to be a sermon where I'm like, you know, um, just like as people talk about us being like David, that, that's not what I want to do. I don't want to just like throw that baby out with the bathwater because there is some truth to be gleaned from the fact that when we walk by faith and not by sight, right, God is at work in us and he will do whatever he sees fit to do. Now, there is some, some truth in that and there, there's wisdom to be gleaned from that understanding. But ultimately, ultimately, what is God trying to show us through this passage today? Right. What, what was the intent for this being written? Because the reason the main reason I say that, well, is because we should be a people of the book and teach what accords with sound doctrine. But also, if you read ahead into Second Samuel and look at chapter 21, if you want to go there now, you can. They slay even more giants. What? Yeah, there's other giants that get killed as well. They're the ones that are mentioned with the six fingers and six toes, right? There's others that get killed. So Goliath wasn't the only giant that they ever faced, okay? He may have been the tallest, but there was other giants that they faced. And so what makes this, this event here different than that event? Because it's, it's almost like in passing it's mentioned. It's, it gets maybe four verses. This is 58 verses that are in this chapter. So what's What's, what's the end goal here, right? What is God trying to teach us through this passage? Well, I think it's important for us to, to get there is we ask that question, well, if it's not about Saul, it's not about Eliab, right? And, and who, who is the man that's going to deliver us? Is, is that man David? Because David slew the giant, right? He did that in that time. Does that make him the man? Well, I think the answer to that is yes and no. Right. It's yes and no for that season, for that time. Yeah, he delivered the people of God. But there would be other Philistines to fight. There'd be other giants to fight. There'd be other enemies that would come against the people of God, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Macedonians, all these different people come constantly terrorizing the people of God, crouching at their door, seeking to devour them. Right. That's that's that continues on and on and on. It never stops. It still hadn't stopped today. So did he deliver the people of God? Well, for a season, we could say yes, right? He, he, he was the man in one sense, but was that ultimately what he was? I think when I think about that, I think about how the people of Israel serve as, a, as an example to us. That's what Ephesians, uh, excuse me, Hebrews tells us. They serve as an example for us of what we should do and not do. But as the people of God, just like they dealt with these invading forces and, and, and evil forces, we deal with the temptation to sin all the time, every single day, right? When we came to the Lord and, and we gave him our lives, we, we confessed our sins, we repented of those sins, we were cleansed once and forever, or once and for all, right, forever. Those sins were paid for past, present, and future. But the problem of the things that we have to deal with today is that even though I was saved and justified, adopted to the family of God like we read earlier, the, some of the sins that I've committed haven't even been committed yet. Right. The, some of the sins that, I, that were, excuse me, that were paid for when I got when God saved me, they haven't been committed yet. So I'm still battling that. I'm still going through that. And, and I think that's important for us to recognize because David is like that. Right. David had this high moment. He was a man after God's own heart. He, he saw clearly in this moment to, to slay this giant. He did everything he was supposed to do. Right. He, he did everything that he was supposed to. But. After this event and, and after the book of First Samuel, what ends up happening? Well, he takes the throne and then he's sitting up in his in his uh, his at his house. He's looking out on the people. He sees Bathsheba minding her own business, bathing. 
and then he has her brought to him. He rapes her, is what, is what happens, um, gets her pregnant, and then tries to get her husband to take ownership of the fa- father in this child. Well, when he doesn't sleep with his wife, he has him killed, right? He, he, he does all these. This is what David does, the man after God's own heart. After he's slain this, this giant, and I come in the name of the Lord, and, and he will deliver me. All this is going on. This man after God's own heart, that's, that's what he did, right? That's what he did after this, right? So this, this and, and that's, just one, that's just one example of his moral failures throughout his ministry, or excuse me, throughout his, his kingship. And when I thought about that particular event, like we would, man, we would write somebody off as being a Christian if they committed those acts, right? If they raped somebody, had their husband killed, and then just continue living life like nothing was wrong, like, like no one knew about it, just continue going. Man, this dude's living in unrepentant sin. He's not even a Christian, right? I'm, I'm just going to toss him by the wayside. That's, that's where my mind goes. But as God's anointed one, as God's chosen one, God didn't let him stay there. And I think that's important for us to recognize Nathan, the prophet of, of David's day, comes to him knowing what he had did and presents this story to him like, hey, this is what's going on. There's these two men, rich, poor. He takes his, his, his one uh, young lamb, takes it, kills him. Right. David's furious. David's furious about this. Like this guy does not deserve to live for doing that, abusing his power, taking what this the only thing that this guy had. He's he, he deserves to die. He does not deserve to live. And, and he's essentially saying, tell me who this man is so I can so I, I can have him executed. This is what I want to know. Tell me who that is. And then in that moment, Nathan is, is face to face with with David. And he says this. Listen to what he says. Right. He's asking, who is the who is this man? So I can take him out. His, ver- his words in 2 Samuel 12, verse 7 through verse 10, he says this, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I have anointed you king over Israel. I have delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. This is the way God spoke to David in that time. So I ask again, who's the man? Is, is David the man? Sure, he killed Goliath, Right. But today, Goliath didn't do anything to us, right? He, he, he would have died a long time ago before we came around. So it's, it's not about Goliath. It's not about David. But when I think about David's life and I think about all the things that he did and, and the great things as well as these terrible things, if you're like me, I don't, I don't want to be like David, I, he's, he doesn't live a life that I want to live. Eliab doesn't live a life that I want to live. Saul doesn't live a life that I, I don't want to be like any of these men. They, they are not the man that I want to be. When I, when I think about them and I think about myself, right, I've got my own sin issues that I'm dealing with, right? The things that nailed Jesus to the cross are sins that I've committed. That's how personal it is, right? The sins I've, yeah, yeah, you've done what you've done, Right. But what have I done? What 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 sins that I commit that because a single sin nailed Jesus to the cross? How many times over 
have I sinned in that way? Not only does this bother me, it crushes me, right? When I, when I truly think about the precious blood of the lamb. It, it doesn't feel good. It causes me to question my salvation, right? And I know I'm not the only one that feels that way, right? If you're caught in some sin or you just recognize the depth of your own sin, the, the, the natural disposition is to be like, I don't deserve this. Now, with that in mind, that struggle is real for us. It should be for all of us, right? Sin should never sit well within us. It's like a pebble in our shoe. It just it never feels right. We're going to commit it. We're going to do it. It's going to happen. It's, it's going to happen. But it should never just sit well with us. And I think Paul puts it perfectly, the way that the, the, the Christian struggles in Romans chapter 7. And I want to read these words for you. And I'm going to do my best to get through it. It's... it's uh, it's just, it's heavy, right? When we think about our sin against God, the struggle that we have, the precious gift that God's given us, it should really, it should bother us. It shouldn't sit well with us at all. Listen to what he says in, in Romans chapter 7, verse 15 through 24. He says this, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law, and that is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. Now if I do, not, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. Verse 21, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells within my members. And then verse 24, wretched man that I am, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Who will deliver me from this body of death, right? Who is that man that is going to save me from myself? Because I'm like David, right? I'm the one that deserves death. That's that's who I am. If the wages of sin is death, I deserve to be executed a long time ago. That's the cold, hard truth for every single one of us. So who's the man? Who will deliver me from this body of death? Verse 25. <clears throat> Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. He's, Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
1 Timothy 1.15, he says it this way. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. I got one more I got to read. Excuse me. Philippians 2, 6 through 11, he says this. Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Sorry, y'all. So who is the man, right? Who is the man? Christ Jesus is the man, the God-man who came to take away the sins of the world. Now, not only did he come to save, but he came to give us life and give us life more abundantly. Now, if we think about it, life apart from Christ is, is meaningless. It's all in vain. There's, there's no purpose. It's like a mist, right? It's like a vapor. It's here today and gone tomorrow. And, and really, a, a big selling point to a lot of prosperity preachers and, and TV evangelists is this, this push for your destiny and your purpose and your meaning in life. And, and it's this really vague, nebulous type of thought to kind of draw people in. But we don't have to seek in some far off place to understand where our our purpose is. In Christ, we are given meaning, we are given purpose, and we are given a destiny. And it's simple enough for a child to know. Now, I don't know where my kids are right now, but when I think about that, there's, we have a catechism that we go over with the kids, and uh, it's, it's, it's awesome. The older two, right, they're in school, so they, they kind of go back and forth, but our youngest, he knows the first couple of questions, and he's, he's about to be three, so it's, it's really cute seeing him say it, but I, what I mean is the fact that, you know, you go off in, in these weird places to try to figure out your meaning and purpose, it's clearly told to us in God's word, and in this catechism we use, it's the first three questions. So these are the questions. I didn't write them down, but I, I hope, I mean, they're super simple, so I better have them memorized. So the first question is, who made you? The answer is, God made me, right? God made me. Okay, what else did God make? He made all things. God made me and he made all things. Okay, well, why did God make you in all things? And the answer to that is, for his own glory. That's our purpose. That's our purpose, right? It's for his own glory. That's why God made me. That's why God saved me. That's the purpose of my life. That's what gives me meaning. There's, if God is a creator of all things, me and everything, what other purpose could there be? Right? If, if he has created everything, if, I, if my sole purpose is something else, it's, it's lesser than God. It's, it's part of his creation. Oh, there are my kids. No, they're back. Now, I wasn't going to put them on the spot, but I was hoping they'd, they'd actually listen to that part. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, when we understand why we live, move, and have our being, right? when we understand what our purpose is, our destiny, our, or whatever other word you, they use in, in those circles, it changes everything. Everything about us changes. And when we're living the Christian life and we get too caught up in the ways of this world and with the stresses of this world, we need to be reminded of that, why we live, why we move, 
and why we have our being. Why did God create you in all things? For his glory. Plain and simple. Christ and his precious gospel must remain at the forefront of our minds and the, it must be the driving force behind all that we do. We live for his glory. That is the purpose of the Christian life. David slew Goliath for the glory of God. As we talked about in our community groups, Paul poured himself out as a drink offering for the glory of God. And if I was to personalize this for us today and, and somewhat in closing, it is not just these major experiences, life and death, that, that are major talking points that, that are to be done to the glory of God. Right. If I was to take some of the roles that we have here at the church, right, parents, love your children, train them in the ways they should go for the glory of God. Spouses, love, respect and serve one another out of reverence for Christ to the glory of God. Children, <laughs> honor your father and mother for the glory of God. Now, if, if you don't find yourself in any of those roles, right, for whatever reason, um, and, and there are reasons, but if you don't find yourself in those roles today, this is the all-encompassing one. Seasoned members and the lightly seasoned members, if you will. I don't want to use the other words that may offend you, but members as a whole, seasoned and lightly seasoned, right? We are to join in discipleship as commanded by God in his word. Right, Titus 2 tells us that the older women are to train the younger women, the older men are to train the younger men. Right? That's how this works. If you're a younger man, seek out an older man. If you're a younger woman, seek out an older woman. If you're an older woman, seek out a younger woman. If you're an older man, seek out a younger man. Right? That's, you fit in one of those roles. Right? And if you're like, ah, well, I'm middle-aged, well, consider yourself whatever, and then seek out the opposite. Okay? Well, however that looks for you. But the thing is, we desperately need each other. That's how we build one another up. And we are actively sinning if we are neglecting this command that God has given. Right? We are actively in sin right now if we are forsaking this. So I ask one more time, who's the man? Who is the man? Right? It's not you. It's not me. It's not even David. But it's Christ, who is our all in all, the author and perfecter of our faith. He's the one for whom the joy was set before him. He endured the cross for our sins. Let us pray.